Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we do wait for you. We wait for you, Jesus, to come. Keep us strong in our faith. Have our hearts, our minds, our soul, our entire being focused on you and you alone above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are continuing our series in the Psalms. As I mentioned last week, the original title in Hebrew is Book of Praises. And when it was translated into Greek, it became Psalms. And that means a song sung or accompanied by a stringed instrument. That's what Psalms means. So they are songs, but they're more than songs, aren't they? Because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, they tell us of who God is and who, in, and who we are in relationship to Him. So there are songs of Him, of praise, of adoration. There are songs that speak of our despair even. The hard times in our life when we cry out to God. There are psalms of great comfort. There are song, songs that really speak to God's sovereignty, His rule, His kingdom over everything. And there are songs, psalms that speak to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. We call those, them messianic songs because they point to Jesus. They are prophecies about Him. Indeed, in Psalm 2, we find these two themes, really. God's rule and the Messiah's reign. And really, that's what it's about. God's rule and the Messiah's reign. Now, in your Bible, it might give this title, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. I'm going to simplify this even more. And the title for today's message is Victory in Jesus. Because I think we can all hang on to that one. So here's our roadmap. Four things this morning. Rebellion of nations, laughter of God, victory in Jesus, and blessing of refuge. So we're going to first start with rebellion of nations. Psalm 2, verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this psalm starts off with a rhetorical phrase, a rhetorical question. That's a question that isn't really meant to be answered. Parents use this all the time. Didn't I tell you to clean up your room? is a rhetorical question. The psalmist here, David, starts off this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's really not a question. It's ultimately a statement about humanity's foolish rebellion against God, and ultimately it is about the rejection of Jesus. And even though this psalm was written 
over 3,000 years ago, it still has so much relevance to this very day. Let me give you an example on a broader scale. There are at least 59 countries, countries in the world today in which Christianity is either outlawed or it's repressed greatly, especially in Islamic countries, but also in communist countries. In China, they are tearing down churches. They are banning people from worshiping. They are imprisoning people. But here's my question, why? Why is Christianity such a threat to these rulers, to these dictators, to those who want to oppress, squash it down? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, people will ban, you know, people won't ban fairy tale books, right? Hansel and Greta and Gretel, things like that. They don't ban fairy books, but they'll ban the Bible. They'll say, well, the Bible's just fairy tales, but if the Bible's just fairy tales, why ban the Bible? Why ban Christianity? Why try to erase Christ Jesus? And the answer is actually really clear. In Christianity, the Bible, it's ultimately about freedom and obedience to the King of Kings, and His name is Jesus So we do not bow our knees to these rulers, to the oppressors, and no matter how bad it gets, we are still free. And that's the cry that we have, that we are free in Christ Jesus. And the world hates this. And so they hate Jesus, the Anointed One. It says, the Anointed One of God. Well, the anointed one really just means it's a form of the word Messiah. And Messiah, and if you translate that into the Greek, it means Christ. So Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's who he is. And in Christ Jesus, we are free from bondage of sin. We are free from the worry of death, of damnation. We are free. And the world hates that. And so they want to wipe it out. Look, this, when you start to understand this, you understand how powerful this freedom is. The apostles, the disciples knew this. Let me tell you just a little bit. So, in Acts chapter 3, just right after, recently, right after the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit really came and empowered the whole church. So, very soon after that, Peter and John, they went up to the temple to pray. And when they came up to the temple, there was this lame man who was going to just beg for money. But rather than giving them money, they healed him in the name of Jesus. And the people were astonished, and they praised God. And so Peter gives this really powerful sermon, and he talks about how all the prophets pointed to Christ Jesus, and that there should be repentance, and that there is salvation in him and him alone. And this really irritated the Jewish leaders of the day. And so they had them arrested. 
And Peter and John went before these rulers. And Peter still preached to them. And he said this. He said, There is no... There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. I'm going to do this again because I don't want to mess up this one. Okay, you ready? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. They proclaim Jesus even to the rulers. Now, the rulers were greatly annoyed. But they couldn't keep them arrested because they hadn't done anything wrong. And besides, there was this lame man who was now healed, and this miracle was truly a witness that they were favored by God, Peter and John. Okay, so put yourself in this situation, right? There's been a healing. You're Peter, John, you're the disciples. You go back, you tell the others about what happened. What would be your reaction? Would, would your reaction be like, okay, that was really good, but you guys got to watch out next time because you really might get arrested or something else might be bad. I bet there were some people who were worried. But I want to read to you our reading from Acts. And it says this, and I'm going to read the whole reading. And when the other disciples, and when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed a direct quotation from our psalm. Then it goes on, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me ask you, why were the disciples not afraid? Because God reigns. He is in control over everything. It says this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. They said, God reigns. And he has foretold that this would happen. And because they believed the word of God, because they trusted the word of God, there was no fear in them. And they said, 
We are going to submit to God and His Word and His authority, not man's. And let's face it, you are either going to submit to God's authority or to man's authority, period. And there's no other choice in between. It's one or the other. Most people reject God because they don't want His authority. They don't want rules that they should follow. They say, oh, I want to be free from that backward thinking of God. I want to be able to do whatever I want. Right? And you see that in our culture today. But really, it's been that way since the garden. So we can't just blame our culture today. But as one writer put it, and I really like this. Apparently, I don't have a slide for it. I'll get there a little bit later on. Oh, actually, here it is. As one writer put it, freedom without authority is anarchy. If you want to throw off the authority of God, you can do so, but you know what you get? Anarchy. And anarchy destroys. And it's kind of like in the book of Judges. They kept disregarding God's word, and the very end of the book of Judges goes this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so what do we do, right? Do we just say, oh, woe is me. Look at the world. I don't know what I should do. And so we hide. No. What did the disciples do? They prayed for boldness, didn't they? They prayed for boldness in speaking God's word. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Look, they did not set out to destroy a government. They did not set out to change the culture. They set out to proclaim the word of God in boldness. And to me, this is very personal. When I take a look at what's happening in America right now, it's more than disheartening. It's disturbing. But I'm not surprised. I'm disturbed, but I'm not surprised. Because God has foretold that things like this would happen. And that you would have people, certainly in the political realm, raging against God, but also using His Word in a subverted manner. For example, the California governor, Newsom, right? Newsom? Yeah, so I don't know if you read about this, but he has been putting up billboards in other states to promote abortion, that they should go to California because Abortion there is legal. Now, that's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is on those billboards, he quotes Scripture. Mark chapter 12, 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. He uses that to promote abortion. By the way, he left off, love the Lord your God. But lest you think I am just disturbed about the liberal side, also the conservative side, when taking to an extreme, it becomes Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism says, if we just get all the laws right in place, we will then have a Christian nation. Let me ask you, how well did that work out for Israel? They had all the laws, right? It was in place. And yet, that really didn't make them the nation. Read Paul's letter to the Romans, and you understand this very fully. See, what what makes a Christian nation? Oh, and by the way, some of the laws, I would agree with. So I don't have a problem with that necessarily. But having the laws doesn't make a Christian nation. What makes a Christian nation? It is faith in Christ Jesus. It is faith in Him and His gospel. That's what makes us Christians. That's what would make us a Christian nation. And so I am called. I vote, by the way, right? I vote. And if certain things happen in this town, I would be the first one out there picketing with other people. But that's not my primary call. My primary call is to speak the Word of God in boldness. To share the life-saving, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. Because it is only through the Gospel that hearts are changed. And when hearts are changed, then the culture changes. And then truly, the politics change as well. It has to be from the heart. And so I pray for us to be like the disciples and pray for boldness no matter where we are. And throughout all of this, even though I am disturbed by what I see, I still have peace in what I see, in what I hear. Because I know that God reigns, that He is in control, and that He is not shaken or disturbed by this. He has wrath, He has anger, but He is not surprised or shaken. Let's go about to the laughter of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the beginning of this verse is rather odd to our ears, isn't it? He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Does this mean that God is petty and vindictive? Is he like the Greek gods, Zeus, Ares, Apollos, who like to manipulate the human beings? And the answer is no, of course not. That's not what it's about. Rather, this is a way for, under, for us to understand whom of God is. That 
all of man's efforts, all of man's efforts, as much as we try, are in vain against God. And his laughter, and how it's written here, his derision, is actually a rebuke to those who rebel against him. And that's why all of these people raging in vain, all of their work ultimately will come to nothing. If you take a look at Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote that, vanity of vanity, right? All is vanity, a chasing after the wind. But I would encourage you to read Job. So Job, chapter 38, verses 4 through 18. I'm not going to read all of it, but a good portion of it. This is the Lord speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you, com- have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. It is a rebuke that the Lord God gives. He says, I am sovereign, I rule, and I am in control. And he will not withhold his judgment. His anointed one will not withhold his judgment. Here's how one commentator put it. It was God who gave gave David his throne on Zion. And it was God who gave David victory after victory as he defeated the enemies of Israel's But this was only a picture of an even greater coronation. God declares that there is but one legitimate king, and that is his son, who is now seated on the throne of glory. And in glory, he will come again. And you could put it this way. Warren Worsby said, If people will not accept God's judgment of sin at the cross, and trust Christ, they will have to accept God's judgment of themselves and their sins. So that we can be assured and have peace even in the tumult is because there truly is victory in Jesus. It says this, I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into place, into pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so this verse, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. It should sound familiar, but kind of strange at the same time, right? How often do you use the word begotten? We don't. Now, there is an old form of the word. It's begat, right? We find that in the Old Testament, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. There was a lot of begatten in the Old Testament. It says this, And Adam lived 130 years 
and begat a son in his own likeness. <laughs> Just think about that. Men, women, at 130 years of age, you'll have more children. Okay, just a little humor there. So begats can certainly mean about making or conceiving a child, but it has another meaning. It begotten, pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class, unique in its kind, specifically Jesus. John 3.16 in the King James Version says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, it says of this, it's talking about the uniqueness of Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to, he shall be to me a son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So God has decreed that his Son, the anointed one, will rule over everything and no one gets a say about whether Jesus will rule or not. Nobody gets to vote on God's decree. And the Son shall have full rule and judgment against all who oppose Him. Now, look, I know that people don't like to hear that Jesus will come in judgment. They want just the Jesus of love, love, love. All you need is love, right? The Beatles. But Jesus is love, and he is truth, righteousness, and holiness. And because he is holy and righteous, there is judgment or wrath against wickedness. In the letter of Hebrews, it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So it uses the imagery of, of breaking a vessel, a clay vessel, just into pieces. In the ancient days, this was really a way to symbolize, to decree that the rulers of the earth, their rule would be broken into pieces. It would be destroyed. For you to get a fuller idea of who Jesus is, go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And its armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 
Look, if you want to know and sum up Revelation in two words, Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. So this is the Jesus that comes again. And no matter the plans of the wicked, no matter the plotting of vain, Jesus wins. And there is a blessing of refuge being in Him. Let's talk this blessing of refuge. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So we've covered plenty of warnings this morning. I'm not going to go into any other warnings, but it does say to kiss the Son. Isn't that a weird phrase, to kiss the Son? I mean, what does that mean? So in the ancient days, you would perhaps kiss the hand, the ring, or even the hem of the garment of the king or the ruler. Why would you do that? Because that would show authority and submission to that person's authority. So this is what it means to kiss the sun. But think about it. There's a lot of diplomats who might bow down and give some honor to a king or some other ruler. But it's really lip service, right? They're only doing that out of form. So let me ask you, is Jesus concerned about the form? About lip service? Will he accept lip service? And the answer is no, he will not. I mean, Judas betrayed him with a kiss, didn't he? There are many people who say, oh, I kissed the son, but they betray him in that kiss. There are people who have the form of religion, but do not have the heart after Christ Jesus. And so really to kiss the son is to say, Jesus, you truly are my Lord and Savior. You are my all in all. In you and you alone, I take my joy. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. You are my refuge in all times, and especially in times of trouble. And so at your feet, I do fall, Jesus. See, in, in the psalm, it talks about this joy quite a bit. It says this in Psalm 5, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. Yes, you know what? Nations are raging this very day. Rulers, people in power are plotting in vain. And yet in Christ Jesus, no matter the circumstances, we have refuge. And we can proclaim the name of Jesus without any fear. So this, this week, I would like you to meditate. Remember, we talked about that last week. Meditate is to ponder, to think through. It does not mean fall asleep. Meditate on this. 
Yeah, I know my I, I know this group, right? <laughs> Meditate on this, ponder. God is sovereign over all things. That's the place to start. Then pray for boldness in speaking the name of Jesus. Submit to his authority. And how are you going to know if you're submitting to his authority? By reading his word, by the way. And so thus you take refuge in God and his word. And all the people said, Amen.